Plucky Ladies Podcast, exploring female curiosity, perseverance, and feats of excellence. Hosted by Jess Cat. Today on Plucky Ladies, I'm talking with Dr. Amanda Kraus. Amanda is an assistant professor of practice in the College of Education. She studies educational policy studies and practice. She's also the assistant vice president for campus life and the executive director for disability resources and housing and residential life. And we're going to talk a lot today about that last piece. I hope we can talk about um, your work in studying disability identity, disability dynamics in the student veteran community, and also disability-related biases and microaggressions. So all of these things are of great interest to many of us here on campus. So welcome, Amanda. I'm so excited to talk with you today. Thanks, Jess. I'm excited to talk with you too. This is going to be fun. Yeah, we we first met, I think, when I was teaching my one of my gigantic courses in Centennial Hall. And we were trying to figure out new ways to accommodate students during exams who needed extended time. And it just wasn't convenient to send tons and tons of students to the Disability Resource Center. Mm -hmm, <laughs> so we yeah. came up with some ideas um, of how to do that, which actually I think ended up being better for the students in the long run as well. Mm -hmm. um, but before we get into some of that work you do at U of A, I want to go back a bit and talk about your history and sort of how you ended up to be where you are today. So I read that you're from suburbs of New York City, which is really intriguing to me because that's my favorite city on earth. So tell me a little bit about your childhood, how you grew up and what sort of how you got interested in doing what you do. Yeah, well, I grew up about 30 miles northwest of New York City in Rockland County, which is very quiet and beautiful. Um, and I would say the, the most interesting thing about Rockland is its proximity to Manhattan. Um, so, um, but it was you know, a lovely place to grow up. Um, I spent some time in New York City growing up mainly for things, for shows or museums or you know, um, special kind of trips or meals or things like that. But um, I've always appreciated growing up near New York City with a bunch of, you know, New Yorkers for parents and aunts and uncles, because, you know, there's so many cultural references, um, you know, pop culture, just so much history um, in and around New York that I feel like I've taken with me, you know, I've been in Tucson for 20 years, um, mm -hmm. but I think I still have my East Coast, New York sensibilities, you know, and impatience and things yep. like that. Um, but yeah, growing up was was lovely. Um, you know, I um, from from there went to college in Pittsburgh um, at Carnegie Mellon University. Um, so very East Coast until grad school when I moved here. But yeah, I don't know what else can I tell you about growing up in New York. It's I, you know I'm I'm Italian. It's a very Italian area, and I do miss some of that being out here. Some of the food and culture, but um, yeah, I try to get back to New York at least once a year because I still have a lot of family out there. So you and I are almost the same in this way. I grew up upstate, but way farther upstate in Rochester. Uh -huh. My family oh, yeah. is also Italian on my father's side. So I grew up with mm -hmm. that whole Italian large family sitting around the table every Sunday, eating lots of good mm -hmm. food, all of that. Yep. Um, and then went to college in Syracuse. So also very East Coast and still gra until graduate school when I ended up in Los Angeles. But um, yeah. I love that part of the world and it's 
for me too, even being that far upstate away from New York City, New York City was always sort of the beacon. Like that's where mm-hmm. I want to go. <laughs> yep. So it's so yeah. a hub of culture and, and all of that. Um, but I want to ask you what, so what were your parents up to? What did they do when you were young? Um, when I was young, I, you know, lived with my mother and my grandmother for mm-hmm. most of my childhood. Um, my mom, you know, always worked um, with with medical doctors and oh. doctor's offices. Okay. Um, my stepfather, um, when he, you know, came into the picture when I was about 11, um, worked for our kind of local power company. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's eventually what, um, prompted their, they moved to Las Vegas when I was in college, which is a little bit about how I got out to this part of the country. Okay. Um, so that eventually what prompted their move, um, out of New York into the Southwest. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, I'm first gen, you know, my, my mom did not go to college. My father did not go to college. My stepfather, did go to college, but as an adult. So he kind of stopped and started multiple times throughout his life and eventually graduated. Um, so yeah, I mean, my whole family is kind of that way. Like my aunts and uncles who, you know, very involved in my life. Also, you know, high school degrees. Um, you know, I think we keep it real in Rockland, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, very similar for me too. I mean, some of my aunts and uncles did go to college, but my mom and dad didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom didn't go until she was, you know, I was like six or seven and she went back for an associate's degree so she could start working as a secretary, you know, and this was mm-hmm. in the early 80s. So um, I wasn't around people who were academics or people who were really into that kind of stuff. So I often wonder, like, how did I end up where I am? You know, I think about that a lot, but. Um, you yeah. Know, so what was it in your life that really drove you to want to go to graduate school and become an academic? Yeah, I have no idea. Um, you know, I, I really don't, you know, I mean, I, I kind of joke about this, but I have always felt kind of, and I'm not religious, but like guided, like I just say yes to the things that come up. Um, you know, when I was in, even in college, I mean, I always knew I wanted to go to college that was never a choice that was never, you know, an option in my mind. So, but even in college, you know, I, I did not have a really strong sense of what I wanted to do. Mm. Um, I was actually a vocal performance major in college. So I sang all my whole childhood, you know, took voice lessons and was in choirs and choruses. And, you know, that was my hobby, you know, that was my love. Um, and and I could come back to this, but I, I would say that, you know, where a lot of kids, you know, do things like arts, a lot of kids do things like sports mm-hmm. um, and being, you know, I was born with a disability. I use a wheelchair now. I started using a wheelchair when I was about 12. Mm-hmm. Um, so that really wasn't like an option for me, right? So I, I went very deep into music and arts and, and things like that. So even in college, mm-hmm. um, I don't know that I guess I thought I would be a famous singer, even though looking back on that, I don't think I really wanted to. And, you know, I went to, again, Carnegie Mellon, where I was fortunate enough to be um, to study in a conservatory. But that really means you're going to be a class, you're a classically trained like opera singer. And that wasn't even what I loved doing. Mm. So I love jazz. I love musical theater. Um, So, you know, it was like 
I don't know. I went to a good school and I went there because I could major and minor in different colleges, which really speaks to my love of both music and real academics, right? Like research and writing. Um, So I went back and forth in college, you know, from music to history, from history to music and ended up with a history degree, social history, which um, is relevant to my work now doing kind of, I would say equity work and looking at, um, you know, experiences of oppressed populations. Mm -hmm. Um, And I graduated with two minors in music and jazz performance. So, you know, why did I want to go to grad school? Um, (laughs) Like, you know, I, I really did love the work that I did in college in student life. So, you know, every university probably organizes it and calls it something different, but essentially student affairs work. You know, I was very involved as an undergraduate student in leadership positions and you know, I was a resident assistant and just did a ton of stuff because Carnegie Mellon was small and you could be very involved in, yeah. in different aspects of the campus community. And I loved it. Yeah. And when it became clear to me that I was not going to be a singer professionally, you know, just that the, 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 the academic path, it just wasn't for me. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that became apparent. And I thought, well, what do I really love to do? Mm-hmm. And what I really loved to do was all of this, you know, student leadership, student life work. Mm-hmm. And um, so then I, I wanted to pursue graduate work in that because I learned from some, you know, mentors and, you know, young professionals in the field that you could actually study higher education and right. student development. Right. So I wanted to do that. And U of A was the first um, brochure that I got. I remember. Mm-hmm the palm trees on the, you know, again, that glossy kind of magazine, the recruitment materials. And um, like I mentioned, my parents had recently moved to Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, maybe Arizona, you know, would be a good place. And I had a friend at the time who lived in Tucson. So my senior year of college, I visited her, I visited our department head and you know, the rest was kind of history, but you know, I've not, I'm not someone who ever since I was young, always wanted to be this or that. Um, Right. And in fact, you know, I I do a lot of disability work, right. Which is probably what we're going to talk about, but um, that was not on my radar until like my mid to late twenties, you know, where I grew up. um, I didn't know a single other disabled person. Um, you know, doctors kind of when I was very young um, advised my mom and my family, you know, not to treat me like I was disabled, um, not to utilize services. So I really had a very um, complicated relationship with disability in that I've always known, you know, I had a disability. I, I in some sense, always identified that way, but I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I wasn't like those people, you know? Um, And so, you know, ableism and other isms run deep and we all, um, you know, I think we all internalize our isms to an extent. So in my case, you know, I I know I internalized a lot of ableism and I still, you know, grapple with that. Um, But yeah, I didn't want to have anything to do with disability. Um, And so it wasn't until I moved to Arizona where we have such a vibrant disability community on 
and around campus that I started to think like, well, you know, maybe there's something, you know, to this. And um, when I started my master's here in higher ed, we didn't read about disability. You know, we didn't talk about disabled college students. There really isn't a, a seminal identity development model that we can look to, uh, to inform our understanding of disability identity development. So I started to just do those things myself. Like every paper I did was about disability. Um, I, you know, kind of parlayed that into my doctoral application, my doctoral research and stuck around, you know, but the, that, that was like this rapid development in from grad school, you know, so most of my twenties, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting because I imagine that people with all sorts of disabilities are in that same boat where there's a mm -hmm. sort of a, you know, there's there maybe part of you that doesn't want to associate with that or identify in that way. And then there's the other part of you that really doesn't have a choice because that's part of who you are, right? I mean, it mm -hmm. is part of your identity. I come across this a lot with students in my courses who have learning disabilities, but they don't get services and they don't, there's something about not wanting to formally acknowledge that that is something that yeah. may affect their experience and so you can't force them to and that's fine that's everybody's choice but I sometimes really worry about those students because I know that there may just be certain things that could give them just to be on an equal playing field with the other students in the class right it's not about special treatment or any of these you know you're not capable it's nothing like that it's just maybe you need an extra 30 minutes to take that exam and it might change your whole experience um, and so that's really interesting that you say that because mm -hmm. sometimes as someone myself who doesn't have a disability, it's hard for me to understand why someone wouldn't make that choice. Yeah. I mean, identity is complicated, right? Whatever way you slice it. And um, I think if you identify as a member of a subordinated group, mm. I, I think it can be more complicated. I think disability um, still is so extremely, I will say misunderstood, yeah. I think. You know, I mean, there's a huge stigma around any kind of disability. Mm -hmm. um, and I think maybe stigma around psychiatric disability or mental health is um, right now the most, um, the, like the easiest to kind of spot and how problematic those ideas are. Yep. And I would also say that really disability continues to be framed as a problem, as a deficit and so whether it's a physical impairment um, or, or any kind of impairment, you know, it's very hard to get any, um, like any other model or any other, you know, thinking around disability that isn't just entirely bad. And I think with disability um, and microaggressions or biases, you know, it's not always like the straight up hateful experience or violence, although that exists certainly, but it's, it's pity, right? It's a lot of pity, a lot of tragedy. Um, so my impairment equals a tragedy, oh, right? Or yeah. my impairment, like that medical lens of like, it needs to be fixed, just fix her, right? And, and then everything will be fine. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is the, the dominant narrative still. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly when I was growing up, like that's really all there was, right? Was just look how great she's doing in spite of, or, you know, anything right. like that. Right. Um, so it wasn't until I met some cool people at Arizona, um, my couple of my mentors, you know, one 
um, another disabled woman chair user who was director at disability resources before I was, yeah. um, was on my doctoral committee and introduced me to wheelchair tennis. Yeah. And then some of my academic mentors who are still, you know, teaching in our program um, today, but really looking at, you know, I'm not the problem here, right? Like I just use a wheelchair, right? The problem is that that doorway is too narrow or there are only steps or you've designed this space, you know, as far as what impacts me right. to be inaccessible, right? That has nothing to do with me, right. but, um, but society would tell you otherwise, right? And so it, it, I think it's hard when you're like unlearning things about um, identity, but also about social justice, right? Because there's not a lot of, of other representation. So it's like, if I have these ideas about, I'm not the problem, just like move that out of my way and we'll be okay. Yeah. Um, but there's no one else who thinks that you don't see that represented in TV or on the news or in books. So it's like, it, it's very confusing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it, it does really, I think, take mentors and, you know, consistently being around people who, in my case, would see disability as constructed by, you know, systemic, systemic and structural barriers, right? Yes. This is a power privilege thing. This isn't my fault or my responsibility. Right. Um, but that's like, that's the work that we're doing, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what I hear you talking about with the students you're working with in ways that I've seen you and your colleagues redesign traditional courses, whether that's Centennial, which seems like a lifetime ago and yeah. kind of was supposed to be this really cool, innovative way to teach large classes, had some issues and, you know, we made the best of it, you know? And then I think of, of the work that you all do with your field, you know, your field work, which is historically and traditionally very physical yeah. um, and ways that we've worked together to not only make that experience more inclusive, but to make other experiences as meaningful as that. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I reference geosciences a lot in my outreach work, whether that's on campus here or with other colleagues, because if hard sciences can make these kinds of changes and still feel that the courses are rigorous and meaningful, then most other disciplines could, could probably make some good changes as well. Yeah, we were talking about this before we started the interview that geosciences is so tricky because for you know centuries it's been associated with being outdoors in the field with a backpack, right. hammering the rocks, <laughs> looking at the rocks, making maps. And for many of us in geos, that's what drew us to geosciences because we're outdoor people or we wanted adventure or we wanted to, you know, spend time in an exotic place looking at the rocks, making maps. And it's become you know, we're at a turning point, I think, where we're starting to see a younger generation of faculty who are much more aware of, of diversity and equity mm -hmm. issues, who are saying, you know, we have to change the face, that outward facing vision of what geology is or geosciences are. You know, when you think about chemistry or physics or astronomy, a lot of those, you can do the work in a laboratory or at a telescope and, and there's not many barriers there potentially as there are to I need to get people into the field to climb a mountain and make a yeah. map and so if you have a physical disability in particular that could be really tricky if that's you know not impossible yeah. but could be tricky so um I really hope that there is a way for geosciences to be re-envisioned so that people who 
still want to contribute can contribute in meaningful ways that don't necessarily require field work. But I also genuinely have a deep love and appreciation for the field work because that's what geosciences was built upon. So there's always going to be some, you know, some back and forth that needs to happen to make progress in these areas. Yeah, right. And like we talked about, you know, prior to the interview, just reimagining these these different aspects of the curriculum, you know, because I think of myself as someone who, again, has always been disabled. Um, I, you know, I never used accommodations because when I was in college, you know, I, I started college in 1996. So post ADA, but like, I don't think we really on my campus really knew what we were doing when it came to accommodations or access. Yeah. Um, Carnegie Mellon is a quirky place, lots of hard sciences, lots of science and lots of theater. Yeah. So, you know, not a lot of disabled students um, or faculty, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but I never used accommodations, I just figured it out. And so I think if I was a college student who was really interested in geosciences, I imagine that I would probably have some ideas on how I could do field work, right? But, but you know, we can't rely on students being, um, you know, confident enough or creative enough to think like, well, Dr. Cap, let's talk about this. I think I, I think I could do some of this, right? So your point about what do we, how do we represent these fields that have been so historically exclusive, not just on the basis of disability, um, but how do we over communicate and very clearly communicate to a diverse range of potential students that this, if you're interested, this is something that we should explore. You could be successful here, um, even if this isn't something you've really thought about or know how to pursue. Yeah. You know, I wanted to ask your opinion too, because I know um, when we talk about the way we frame this as something that's to be overcome or something negative, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And I've heard a lot in the, um, like in the community um, of people sort of on the autism spectrum, this has become mm -hmm something where we were changing the words that we use, where instead of being mm -hmm. autistic or on the spectrum, we're using terms like neurodiverse or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and I'm wondering if in the disability community, has there been any changes to the verbiage that we use around disability? Because, you know, number one, as someone who's not in that community, of course, I want to use the terms sure. that are meaningful to that community. But also it makes me wonder if you have a term like disabled, does that term in itself set up something negative in people's minds? Um, and is that even mm -hmm. a factor that, that people should be thinking about? Yeah, language is complicated, uh, period, yeah. right? Yeah. And I think um, with disability too, you know, yeah. so I have a lot to say about this. Yeah. <laughs> I talk about this a lot, you know, in, in the work that I do. Right. Um, you know, and kind of looking at stereotypes and bias and right. disability identity. I mean, I would say that, you know, a, a progressive way or like a, you know, the way that a disability studies scholar would conceptualize disability is, you know, kind of naturally occurring on the spectrum of human difference. Yep. Right. So there is an impairment and that impairment is neither good nor bad, right? It's just part of human diversity. Sure. It's hard though, because we don't wanna say like, well, everyone's disabled, right? I don't mean that. Right. Um, impairment, right? A, a unique physiological difference in the body or the brain, like we should anticipate that, 
right, right. across this spectrum of difference. In my opinion, disability and disabled is political, right? So no, not everyone is disabled. Everyone exists somewhere on this spectrum, but if you're short or if you wear glasses, no, you're not disabled, right? In my opinion, you're, you're not disabled until you've been oppressed, yeah. discriminated against, mm -hmm. excluded, um, and until you claim disability, right? And that may or may not ever happen for someone. So, you know, in the 90s, um, 80s and 90s, when we were really interested in being politically correct, a lot of you know, um, euphemisms were kind of created and pushed upon disabled and non-disabled people, right? So physically or mentally challenged, mm -hmm. um, handy capable, differently abled, you know, things like that, that really, um, really bother me, have always bothered me, but they bother me a lot as a disabled adult and professional mm -hmm. um, because, you know, no, we're not differently able. Right, like I am disabled. Yeah. Right. I, I am in a different category. Yeah. Right. I'm I'm not physically challenged. I have a physical impairment, and I am disabled yeah. by attitudinal barriers, structural barriers. Mm -hmm. Right. By the ways we've institutionalized ableism across every aspect of our society. Yeah. So I think it's very important to say disability. And I'm just kind of speaking broadly. I, I don't want to speak for the deaf community that I know has, there's a lot of dynamics there around differences between capital D deaf and disabled. Mm -hmm. um, I think folks with autism or autistic folks also have kind of emerging thinking and interest around language. Yeah. Um, and my sense is that using neurodiverse challenges the rest of us to think about the spectrum again, and not just put autistic folks in a box, yeah. right? Like we know what that means. So I think it's very important to say disability. Yeah. Um, whether it's, you know, person first, which is I'm a person with a disability, yep. um, or whether it's identity first, I'm a disabled person. Okay. And, you know, for me, I, I prefer identity first language. I'm a disabled white woman. Mm -hmm. um, that's more consistent in how I think about disability kind of versus impairment. Yeah. Um, it's also more consistent for me uh, in how I would identify with my other characteristics. I'm a white woman. I'm not a person with whiteness or a person who is white. Right. I'm a woman, not a person who is a woman. Right. Um, yeah. But there are a lot of people who, who have reflected on, on these choices and still prefer person-first language. And it might be in response to stigma. Yeah. Um, maybe people with invisible disabilities. Again, I don't have an invisible disability, so there's some different dynamics there. Yeah. Um, but there are people who I, you know, who I know prefer to say I'm a person with a disability, I'm a person first. Yeah. And I think it's in an in an attempt to separate themselves from the stigma. Yeah. Right? Like not necessarily about what disability means other than disability is framed. We've, we've all been socialized to think about disability as something bad, undesirable, tragic. Yep. Um, so I, I, want, I want you to separate me away from that and, and look at me as a person. I feel like both of these choices are valid, of course. Yep. Um, I tend to use those terms interchangeably. Mm -hmm. um, when I refer to myself, it, it's almost always a disabled 
person. Um, but you know, language can be off-putting and that was one of your wonders, right? If we consistently refer to people as disabled and you know, will we turn some people off? Maybe, right? I mean, I, and I, so I feel like saying disability is very important. Yeah. And referring to people as people with disabilities or disabled people kind of interchangeably in writing might, might feel good or might strike a good balance. Yeah. I also think it's important when we're talking about access to really reference disability related access yeah. and not special, right? Special is yeah. a whole other thing, right? Yeah. Where it's like, my needs are not special. Yeah. Right. What is what are the what what are the differences in our needs? Like I need to find a spot to sit in your classroom. I need to take your exam. Um, I need to get in my car and, you know, use the restroom. Like these are all very typical experiences. But because of the ways our environments have been designed, somehow where where I sit in your classroom is a special accommodation. Yeah. So I really encourage us faculty, other, you know, designers, when we're thinking about our kind of sphere of influence, like my needs aren't special. And the more we perpetuate that kind of myth, yeah. the more damage we're doing. So I think it's important to name disability in that area as well, to request disability related accommodations with questions about disability related access. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and to build those statements into larger you know, kind of reflections of our values, right? Like in geosciences, we're working really diligently to diversify our student body. Here are some examples of all of these different things we're doing. And we're also talking about disability. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, that's where those, those statements and, and that's where it belongs, right? In, a, in the larger kind of um, goal of diversifying and making things more inclusive for everyone. Sure. You know, and I think, the last thing I'll say about it is that, you know, we've all been socialized this way, you and me, disabled and non-disabled. So, you know, when we talked earlier about internalized ableism and internalized sexism, internalized racism, um, you know, I've gotten the same messages as you over the years about what it means to be disabled and what disability means. So this is really an unlearning for everyone and a demonstration of you know, kind of newer values, more inclusive values for everyone. Yeah. Well, that really um, helps me understand, you know, why we, we use the terminology we use and why it's so important. Um, I think this is something that, you know, a lot of well-intentioned people mm -hmm. want to change phrases because it sounds better, right? Like you're talking about, like separate us from something negative. So call us something that sounds positive, but right. we have to understand, you know, that this is it isn't just about that but about this oppression and this systematic sort of ableism that we don't even realize happens sometimes and we think we're trying to do something good but it's really not recognizing the experience yeah i mean and i think that's that i i agree you know and like i said earlier i would say that most of the microaggressions that i experience as a disabled person are well intended you know there are ways that people are trying to be nice and helpful and accepting yeah. there are you know, countless ways that disabled people experience more violent or hateful, um, you know, aspects of, you know, society. But 
Um, I think a lot of it, especially like folks that we work with and, you know, on a college campus are trying to really do the right thing. Um, And we've been trained to use this language and trained to interpret the ADA in these very narrow ways. But something that I, that I always try to say is like, imagine if there's one of your multiple identities, but other people were so uncomfortable with it and other people believed it was so bad that they wouldn't ever say it to you. Like they wouldn't dare call you that. And that's how it feels, right? Mm -hmm. To me. And, and I think to others, Mm -hmm. right? Where it's like, no, you know, it's confusing, right? Like I'm okay with this identity, but you're consistently telling me I shouldn't be okay with it. it. It's confusing. And I think of the students that we typically work with who are, you know, really in, in, in the, the trenches of their identity development, you know, I mean, the, the inconsistency is challenging. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's all out of a way, like, I want to protect you from that. But that in and of itself is problematic, right? right. So like, still our, our desire or our interest in not saying disability is directly related to our bias about as, disability. As if you need protecting from us. <laughs> right. Right, 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 right. Um, can you give us some, because not everybody maybe understands what microaggressions are. I mm-hmm. think all of us have experienced them in one way or another. I know I have around, you know, being a woman. Um, sure. And I think people experience them all the time based on, on race, right, or ethnicity. Yeah. Um, but can you give us some um, examples of, and they don't have to be from your own experience, but just what people might do that are microaggressions that maybe we don't even realize we're doing or things that people experience that can be hurtful that that maybe we're not thinking about. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah. How much time do we have? <laughs> as much as you want. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, you know, I think with disability, there's a lot of, so there's, there's kind of one seminal piece of research that categorizes, um, the ways that disabled people experience microaggressions into like eight domains. So I'm trying to think of them, but I live them on a daily basis. You know, I would say that microaggression research is still relatively new period. Um, And it's, you know, there's some good work going on on disability, but it's, you know, less developed than maybe race or um, gender. But um, the denial of privacy is a big one. Um, So, and, and, you know, that can be as simple as staring at someone mm-hmm. that could be, um, and, and again, this is extremely common, but like, what happened to you, right? Like what, how'd you end up in a chair? Or like, I see that scar, you know, and it's like, dude, I'm, I'm in line for brunch. Right. Like, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not engaging you. I didn't make eye contact with you, right. but people really want to know, Yeah. you know, and there's no way to satisfy that interest because I mean, really nothing happened to me. I was born this way. And, um, you know, what, how can someone who doesn't know you understand, or are they going to be satisfied if somebody responded with, well, I was in a car accident and everyone else in the car died, but me. And now, you know what I mean? Like I, what is the answer, right? What do they expect? Right. Um, I think a lot of what, what the research would say, denial of identity is huge as well. Um, and that, that can come in many forms right that can be like you know you're gonna get a speeding ticket for that or your arms must be so strong or 
you know, oh, I hear you're a little, you know, you're down. Um, why don't you, have you ever tried getting, getting out and getting some sun, right? All of these ways that folks try to downplay or, uh, it, it, I mean, in, really what they're doing is making light of disability or, you know, not validating disability as a real lived experience. It's not something funny to make a, a joke about, even though the, you know, your arms must be so strong or, you know, look at how fast you're going. I, I don't think people who make those comments do so to make fun of a disabled person, but I think they're trying to be accepting somehow, but that doesn't really validate my lived experience as a, a disabled woman, right? That makes light of something that's very important to me. Yeah. Um, you know, folks with invisible disabilities, right? Learning disabilities or otherwise, like we'll study harder, right? No, that's, that's a denial of that person's identity. And things like that, I think are, um, or perspectives like that are very relevant to our, you know, higher education environment, right? Higher ed is competitive. Um, it is exclusive, right? So there's, there's that. There's lots of different types of institutions for folks to attend, um, mm -hmm. some more exclusive than others. So I think in a competitive environment, um, I would say in particular invisible disabilities that aren't whatever obvious quote unquote means to other people, yeah. right? It's like they're lying, right? They don't, they don't need that accommodation. If yeah. I, you know, I've never heard of this before, so they're lying. Yeah. Um, they should just study harder. My tests are hard, right? So yeah, they're going to need to work harder. And these are things that, that people often say, and, and that's either well-intended or it's just completely ignorant of the realities of how impairment might intersect with the design of, let's say an exam, Yeah. right? Which is the most frequent type of accommodation we make certainly at, on our campus, but I would say disability resources professionals across the country, right, is extended time on exams. Well, right. how do, look, why is 50 minutes the golden essential number for, you know, when a student needs to complete your exam? It's not research-based. It's because right. you have your classroom for 50 minutes. So, right. you know, there's a lot to look at. And I think when you are in a competitive environment, um, there's a lot of pressure on everyone, but on students, you know, and that's what you were saying earlier, like, why would I go to the Disability Resource Center and get an accommodation when now I'm putting my reputation at risk, right? And we see that, you know, that holds true year after year in professional programs, right? Where medical school, nursing, law, um, very few people pursue accommodations and that doesn't mean they're not disabled, right? It means that the environment is so competitive that they're worried about it ultimately being detrimental um, to their experience. So microaggressions with disability, I mean, I think that they're rampant. Um, you know, the help helping is another one that is also related to our competitive environment that we work in, but that can be, I mean, I was at Target a few, maybe a month ago yeah. doing self-checkout minding my own business. Um, and the, per the woman next to me, I believe it was a woman, the person next to me was finishing up and just almost felt like this obligatory, like you look totally fine to me, but is there anything I can do to help you? It's like, why would I need you to help me? 
you know, I mean, like yeah. I'm at the end of my target experience, right? Yeah. I've made it all the way through the store. Yeah. I didn't ask for any help. I didn't right. drop something like a, a kind of typical cue for help. And it's like the way she said it was, you look totally fine to me. And I don't know if we can curse on this podcast or not, <laughs> but fuck you, right? Yeah. Like I didn't, I didn't, I don't need your approval, right? right. About what I look like to you. Right. Um, and I'm fine. Well, and the fact but, that you said you look totally fine. Yeah. Then why are you taking it to the next step? I don't know. You're assuming that I'm not fine. Right. Because people have been programmed to do this. You know, that's what I mean. It's like, it was almost like she couldn't leave the store without just checking that box, like disabled people equal help. I must offer help. Right. And right. this happens a lot, you know, kind of incidentally out and about. But again, if we bring it back to the classroom environment, you know, I've just given some extreme examples of hypothetical faculty who would say like, no, right? Yeah. They need to study more, they need to work harder. Well, the other end of the spectrum is the faculty member who said, I just wanna do anything possible to help this student. So they don't need to turn in this assignment or I'm gonna work with them one-on-one. -on -one. Right. And again, it's like, no, we, we're not asking faculty to do any of that. Right. All we're asking faculty to do is treat all of their students the same, right. hold them all to the same standards yes. and work with us when there's a barrier. Mm -hmm. Ideally, you know, when we have interested faculty like you, you know, then it's like, what else can we do? Yeah. Right. Like, hey, while we're talking about this one accommodation, yeah. what else can we do to maybe reduce the need for accommodation? which yeah. not only does it make it more equitable for everyone, but I think you and I both know it's a lot less work for us both, right? It's a lot less work for you as a faculty member if you're not worrying about the 20 students in your large class who have these accommodations. Yeah. And it's a lot easier for the student, right? right? So that's the good work. And I think that's kind of the reminder for faculty, it's like, you don't have to do anything different. We're here to work with you, yeah. but just stay the course, yeah. <laughs> you know? So yeah. even though you might wanna help or even though you might wanna really, you know, kind of toe that line of, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna be flexible at all. Yeah. You know, we just need to, to administer the course, right? And hopefully, you know, everybody has a good experience and can access all aspects of it. Well, not hopefully, but they will aspect, um, yeah. access all aspects of it. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I, you know, I'm learning is that um, these timed exams that we have in a classroom, you know, they're stressful mm -hmm. for all students, you know, regardless of ability or disability. Mm -hmm. And um, there's very few students that that scenario is ideal for, let's just say right. it that way. And so I've been really interested, especially with teaching remotely now with COVID and all of that, you know, how, how I give students exams and how much right. those exams are worth in terms of their score in the class. And can we reduce that and make it less high stakes and give them more time and all of these things. And I think that, um, so I can say for myself and some of my colleagues, one of the biggest hurdles to overcome when you sort of step out of the traditional exam giving is okay so now how do i also ensure that students aren't just cheating rampantly because yep. yeah. as you know um you know with online especially if we're not using proctored things which is really hard to do with 300 people or 400 yes people, it's really hard and it's just a pain for the students to have to figure right. out how they're going to either get to a proctor center or have all the right things on their computer to be 
proctored with a video camera, which brings up its own issues of everyone having to be on camera and all that stuff. So we have to think differently about what we're asking students to do for credit and for exam scores. And I think where faculty have a big issue is one with the question of cheating, but two, now I have to come up with alternatives that are much different than those multiple choice exams that are easy to cheat on. And yep. that's a lot of work. And so I think we, just, we end up with these situations where people go, you know what, I'd rather just deal with the 10 students who have accommodations than figure out a new model that's going to work for everybody. Um, yep. And that's hard. Yeah. You know, that's a hard barrier to overcome. But I think it's really it, yeah. important. I do too. I mean, that is the challenge. Yeah. You know, and I'm sitting here thinking about how different our disciplines are. Right, because before we started chatting, you know, on the podcast, you're teaching a science class of 300 and I'm teaching a higher ed class for 12 grad students, right? So very different. Um, and And I really appreciate what you're articulating as like, this takes time, you know, it takes time, it takes thoughtfulness, it takes planning to make any change Mm -hmm. to your course. Um, let alone like a really substantive change. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with the pandemic, we we were forced, right, last March, just like whatever you're doing, we're doing this now, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay, not our maybe not our best semester, yeah. but um, you know, for a lot of reasons. But you know, what are those typical barriers? And then what could we do? Right. So if you know. If in a large class, you know, the most frequent accommodation, again, is exams, then how can we unpack this and how can we create an assessment that is effective in measuring student learning that doesn't promote cheating, um, but is also, you know, inclusive enough where maybe time isn't this huge barrier. And it's hard to speak about, I think, like in general, because I don't know, right, what a particular faculty member is testing on and what is essential. But I think that's a place to start, right? Like, what's essential? So when I'm looking at my syllabus, you know, hopefully a few months before the course starts on a a good year, it's like, what do they have to do? Like, what is absolutely essential? and I think, um, you know, an example from higher ed that I could offer is, you know, historically our master's students take comprehensive exams, um, almost all of them. Some of them could pursue a thesis option, but it's, it's certainly not the, more, the most popular option. So their comprehensive exams have been the same for 20 years. They, up until very recently, when I took my master's comps, they were the same as a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Three essay style questions, you study, you come in and sit for an exam for four hours. You, I, you know, I used to handwrite, but like, you know, you write or type your responses right. um, and turn them in in four hours. So then a few years ago, I was like, we have to give them extended time. But now we're getting into like six hours, right? Like who, who can do this, right? Yeah. Like who is the person who is like raring to go, right. you know, essay style writing for six hours, really with with no break. So then we're like, well, maybe we should just extend the time for everyone, right? But still didn't really eliminate the problem of like who can sit for six hours and write, you know, their responses. So then just 
just last year, we're like, just give it to them, take home. Right. You know, so then it's like the same general question, right? Mm -hmm. Respond to these fundamental models, theories, practices that you're learning about in these courses, but do so over a week. Yeah. Um, and they're going to be maybe a little bit longer, sure. right? Maybe you are going to use all of your notes and all of your textbooks and all of your resources. Maybe you're going to talk to each other, talk it through. Yeah. And I don't think that that's cheating, right? I think that that's actually more like a professional assignment sure. um, than coming in and sitting for an exam, yeah. right? So if my, you know, if the provost came to me and said, in a week, I need you to develop a proposal about X, Y, or Z, I'm probably, I'm going to do some research and I'm going to talk to my colleagues and I'm going to want to read it over. Yep. Um, you know, so there we've eliminated a few barriers and everybody feels a lot better about going into the experience because disabled or not, I think tests make people nervous and yep. that, that makes them maybe not perform as well. Yep. So that's like a really easy example from higher ed because we're talking about writing an essay. Yeah. But I think that there are ways to look at other kinds of assessments um, and figure out like, well, how can we afford more time and flexibility, still ask for this very <clears throat> high standard, you know, meaningful results, but maybe encourage them to use their resources and to talk to each other. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but not everything is like as easy as my higher ed example, which is easy for me because it's my department. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's like, what are we really asking these people to do and why, <laughs> right? Exactly. And I think those are the questions that I ask myself every semester when I'm like looking at my um, deadlines and my assignments. And I'm like, why am I asking them to do this? Yeah. You know, yeah. um, a couple, I think a year and a half ago, I started to make almost all of my assignments, um, the deadlines suggested. Oh, okay. So, but again, small class, grad students, right. different dynamic than what other people are, are you know, working with. Um, but I was like, you know, to be honest, I never know what to do when a student comes to me and says, you know, I was on call or I had this family emergency and I just need to turn this in a day late. Like I've never taken off points. Right. So now I have this inequitable response, right. right? Right. Okay. Jess, yours was due on Monday, but Amanda, you're good on Tuesday. Right. So then I was like, who cares? Right. It's yeah. like, as long as they're done and yep. as long as they're done by the end of the semester, yeah. great. And what I have found is that the suggested deadline is next Monday, almost hundred percent are submitted by next Monday. Yeah. Um, but if there is a request that could be disability related or not, you know, usually not. Right. The flexibility is built in and definitely in the last couple of semesters teaching online and dealing with COVID, people, ex you know, students explicitly said like, I've really appreciated that flexibility because I've been really down or, you know, I've had to work around the clock or I got COVID and the symptoms have been really unpredictable. So, yeah. Exactly. You know, things like that, like any sort of flexibility that we can, you know, infuse into our teaching, as long as it's not compromising something really important, sure. Sure. it probably is just going to be helpful for everyone. Yeah, I can, I can comment with the classes that I teach in contrast to what you're doing. So that is something I've built in more flexibility. However, I will say that suggested deadlines for mostly freshmen in a large gen ed class probably wouldn't work only because right. 
a lot of those students, the motivation for actually keeping up with the work is that Sunday night at midnight is always when that week's work is due. Yeah. So it's a routine that they get used to. And now that doesn't mean that if I have a student who emails me and says I had COVID or whatever, and I that I don't just extend the deadline for them. I mean, I'm happy to sure. do that, but it does make more work for me. And it does set some inequity because then there might yeah. be another student who also had an issue and just didn't reach out to me and they couldn't right. get the work in on time, but they don't get the advantage of that extension. So right. in theory, I would love to be able to be that flexible, but I think it mm -hmm. also depends on the situation you're in, the students you're dealing with, the size of the class, because I, I could see happening where I have students who just don't do any of the work and then we're in week 15 and yeah. they're emailing me going, okay, well, as long as I turn everything in by the last day, am I good? Sure. But now they've missed all that material that they really needed to be successful yes. on, those, on those assessments. Right. And I think that that's an important metric, right? Or consideration. It's yeah. like, you know, what I hear is at least two issues, right? Mm -hmm. Is like one, I have 12 students in my class, you have 300. So worst case scenario, five of my students turn everything in at the end of the semester. It's a lot of work for me, but not as much as it would be for you if half of your class did that. Right. And I think, I think that is a, you know, part of how we weigh and explore reasonableness. Yep. You know, just like, is that reasonable for you as a faculty member to manage? And I would say no. Right. Right. And then I think if the assignments are cumulative, mine, mine are not right. Every week is kind of a different topic. But that's another consideration, sure, sure. right? So this blanket flexibility, you know, no deadlines. I mean, that might not work for every class, right? But how can we, like you, consider every request um, and be be humane, right? Yeah. And be flexible. Um, yeah. And that might lead to some inequities. Yep. And maybe that means we have to communicate widely to the class like I am very flexible when you come and talk to me yeah right which might encourage the, the someone who has less kind of cultural capital less confidence yeah. who's wouldn't dare come to you and ask for an extension even though they're sick in bed and right that might encourage them to come talk to you right right or instead of like one date you know I'm, I'm just kind of brainstorming here but like papers are due Sunday night at 8 p.m. Um, papers are due during this this window of time, you know, maybe it's three days. Yeah. Right. And if if your papers in in this window, we're good. If not, talk to me. Yeah. You know, I, I think that there's there's got to be different ways to apply flexibility and, you know, to various venues where yeah. they're not making it inequitable, not creating a ton more work. Yep. Right. But, but to your earlier point, to think through all of this is a commitment Yeah, to make those changes to your course is a commitment. And I do think a lot of faculty are happy to work with DRC, happy to do what they need to do to make sure that their course is accessible, um, but are less interested. And I don't mean that in a, you know, flippant, like I don't care sort of way, but I don't have the time to really do what you're suggesting. And I see what you're suggesting and I don't, it's overwhelming and time consuming and I just can't do it. Um, and I would say that's gotta be especially true for adjunct faculty, oh, yeah. for pre-tenure faculty. Um, so, you know, yeah. flexibility also exists on a spectrum. 
That's right. That's right. But at the end of the day, the truth is that when you do think about those things, you look at your syllabus and say, what are the actual things I want students to be able to do or talk about or explain when they're done yep. with my course? We often find, I mean, I've done this before, that what we're teaching isn't really toward that end goal and that maybe yeah. some of the assessments we're requiring aren't really toward that end goal either. And exactly. we end up, you know, you end up making modifications that make your course better in the end for everybody. Right. So, right. you know, I would encourage people to think about those things regardless of whether you're doing yeah. it for disabled students or are you just doing it because it's going to make your course better. Right. Which right. Great. Right. And really to, to assess, like you're saying, like, what are the things that I'm doing for disabled students? And could I do those for non-disabled students, right? Like, just look, really look at, like, what are the accommodations that I've made? And is there a way that I can, you know, expand that? And, yeah. and I feel like COVID has been this, yep. you know, really great case study for universal design, right? And, you know, I think we're working through a lot of our learning edges and opportunities, um, but, you know, we, we all, um, supervisors, faculty, students, employees went almost 100% remote with less than a week of preparation. And the university is still open. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're still doing, we're still working. At, you know, I, I think all of the, the effectiveness, you know, I mean, I, I'd like to think that we're still running effective departments and having effective classes. Yep. Um, you know, so it's like, a lot of the things that previously were reserved for disability accommodations, flexibility with attendance, extended time on deadlines, yep. working remotely, um, all of that right now is, is what we're doing for everyone, what we're offering for everyone, which on one hand from where I'm sitting as a disability resources professional, it's like, yeah, we've been telling you all this for years, <laughs> right? Like yeah. we've been waiting to get to this point. Like, people can be working remotely and still getting things done. Right, right. And it might be better for the department in a number of ways. Right. Um, and then it's also like, you know, there's been a lot of opinion pieces that I've seen online about how this really does reveal how ableist higher education is, right? Where it's like before disabled people needed to go through this whole different process and get documentation and beg for access that now, you know, the pandemic has just kind of thrust upon all of us. So yeah, and we also were, we didn't hesitate to hand all those things nope. to non-disabled people. We just said, here we go, guys. Here you go. Work. Yeah. Work so from home. Why was it so hard to get there before? It's really interesting mm -hmm. to think about that question. Um, but I definitely want to ask you too, before we run out of time, because you're being very generous with your time and I mm -hmm. appreciate it. But I know that U of A in particular is nationally recognized for the work that it does in this area of, um, you know, sort of progressive um, delivery of, of whatever it is that we do yeah. around disability. And so I would love for you to talk a little bit about what it is that makes University of Arizona special in this regard. Yeah, well, thanks for that. Um, yeah. It was just this year that U of A was ranked number one best campus for students with disabilities by College Magazine. Oh, and then as New Mobility Magazine also rated it in the top five for um, chair users and wow. um, students with physical disabilities. So rankings like that are kind of fun. You know, they're, sure. they're easy ways to kind of draw attention to you know, I think the good work that we've been doing. Um, 
U of A has a very long history of disability resources. So I've been director for four years. I've been at DRC for 13. But prior to, you know, myself, um, there were two very progressive directors, right? So disability resources was established prior to the ADA, kind of in the mid to late 70s. Wow. Um, and so it's existed in some form on campus for like 50 years, wow. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So we have a long history. Mm -hmm. um, and I think our strength is colleagues like you and, you know, a campus that is invested in access broadly. And that takes, um, I think it takes a lot of, um, you know, effort and relationship building and outreach. But, you know, our center has about 40 staff, which is quite large for a disability resource office. Yeah. Um, in addition to access and accommodations, we also have the largest collegiate wheelchair sports program in the country. Yeah. And we have a, a fledgling disability cultural center. Mm. So in addition to some of those core services and functions, we have areas that really support community, yeah. um, community development. Mm -hmm. But with respect to access and accommodations, you know, there are a number of our staff who work individually with students, employees, and guests to campus on accommodation requests or barriers that they're encountering. There are also a number of our staff who look outward and really inform um, campus design systemically. Mm -hmm. So for many years, you know, we've had a team that works on the built environment, physical access, yeah. um, folks who consult on plans for new construction, major renovation, events. Yeah. Um, we have a, a similar model for IT and digital access. So what are those major software purchases that the institution is exploring and are they accessible? And how do we train people to use um, you know, various tools and make sure that they're accessible, captioning, things like that, yeah. testing um, for products and you know, working out um, barriers that folks are encountering in the online environment. Yeah. Um, policy, I mean, we try to be everywhere, you know, and but the, the reason that we're able to do that is because of our very large staff, I think because of our good partners who I believe are championing disability and access even when we're not there. And I think because we've existed for so long um, that this has become part of U of A's culture. Yeah. And, and as, as proud as I am of our campus and I think of, you know, the ways that we really try to get into the systemic design yeah. you know, so that we're prioritizing access and inclusion. Um, perhaps we are reducing, maybe even eliminating the need for an individual accommodation. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's our, our really our model. Mm -hmm. um, but again, we couldn't be doing that if, if we were only resourced to respond to individual requests. And that is unfortunately how most DR offices you know, in the US are organized and resourced. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very much a product of the ADA culture of check a box or like, we're happy to make accommodations. You know, this is what we're here for. Um, but of course, something that's universally designed is also compliant. Yeah. So how can we, you know, 
work both sides and really lead everyone toward thinking about let's start from a place of equity yeah. and universal design and only do an individual accommodation when that's our only option. Yeah. Um, but all of this, I mean, is because of the support of our campus, because of our colleagues. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's the only way that I could ever see myself doing this work, honestly, yeah. you know, because I find conversations like these, I find like brainstorming and really kind of systemic change that yeah. is extremely exciting and motivating to me. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, we have to be always conscious of how to create a campus culture that's just inclusive and welcoming from the get-go. Yeah. It's such a proactive approach as, as opposed to a reactive approach, right? Yeah. You yeah. really want to create something that is that does function for everyone. And then when, if and when we have really specialized cases or things that are, right. you know, then okay, we can we can deal with those mm -hmm. things. But but it's always, you know, we hear about this a lot too, even with our with societal issues, where instead of you know waiting for people mm -hmm. who have mental illnesses to commit a crime and then they end up in jail and then maybe we have services for them, what yeah. if we what if we thought about how do we deal with with you know mental illness from the beginning? Why don't we think right. about it could be the same with with disabilities and invisible disabilities mm -hmm. rather than you know the stigma around them or okay well we'll deal with that when we get there how do we create courses and programs and such that yeah. no matter what your disability you're going to find a way through it that yeah. is accommodating for you that's right. not as you say special quote unquote special right is right part of the norm yeah i mean and i think as we have different conversations in higher education about retention and success and climate you know, we really should be anticipating a diverse group of students right. in our class and on our campus. And if we're not, that seems like we're stuck, you know, in the dark ages, right? So I think if we are kind of employing universal design strategies, that will make things more inclusive, not just for disabled students, but for international students, for English language learners, right. for, you know, students who are parents, students who are caregivers, yep. Um, you know, it, it, it really does support a variety of engagement, whether they're styles, preferences, maybe they are based on impairment. Um, but, you know, higher ed generally, I mean, certainly it's evolved, but when we look at its relatively short history, yeah. I mean, it's, it's been designed to keep people out. Yeah. And, you know, we're still... 400 years later, I think, dealing with the manifestations of its exclusive roots. Yeah. So what I always wonder about, and, you know, this isn't necessarily specific to the University of Arizona by any means, but it's like, we look at all of our, you know, we look at our campus and then we're like, okay, let's develop a special program for this group and a special program for that group. And we'll funnel those students over there. And it's like, is that is that how we're going to do this, you know, for the rest of our careers? Right. Or are there like bigger systemic policies or practices or role modeling? I mean, we look at like diversifying faculty and diversifying administrators. Like what else can we be doing so that when an underrepresented student or a historically marginalized student comes to campus, we're not like shoving them off to this special program right. where, you know, that, that could be an option if they want it. Right. Um, but they also see themselves represented 
right. all over campus. Yes. I know we've have been having this discussion a lot in geo, um, you know, geosciences is one of the least diverse of the STEM fields, I'm sorry to say, but, um, you know, there's a long history in, in geology of math yeah. and very diverse for many reasons. But one of the things that we've done recently, that's a very small step, but it's something that lots of institutions are doing is getting rid of these, these exams, these standardized yes. exams that are set up to, for students who are the very typical traditional, you know, mm -hmm. uh, student, and they don't really work for anyone who doesn't fall into that very narrow category. Right. And yet there are people in higher ed who still believe without them, we can't make decisions about who belongs right. in a graduate program, like with these GRE exams. And it's like, well, yeah. except that we know that they really don't work for the majority of people who are taking them. <laughs> so, That's right. You know, trying to eliminate those types of barriers are very small steps, but they're very easy to do. Yes. And they do speak volumes about our commitment to diversifying our programs. Right. Um, higher ed did away with our, our GRE requirement or standardized test requirement last year. Mm -hmm. And we study higher education, you know, right. so as long as I've been a, a student and a faculty member in our program, I've known that standardized tests do not predict, right. you know, undergraduate success. Right. Um, but rankings and, you know, norms, you know, but we're much happier, yep. you know, eliminating another potential barrier to accessing higher ed. Yeah. Right. And that could just be financial. I mean, it could oh, right. be any number of things, sure. you know, but, right. um, but yeah. And I think that that, test, right. Finding exactly. All of those things. I mean, and again, just to reiterate, I think a lot of what drives the resistance there is faculty now having to face the fact that, okay, I can't just look at a number and eliminate people. I have to look deeper. I have to spend right. more time on their application, looking at their written work, looking at their recommendation letters, interviewing them, right? Yep. These are all things that are gonna give you better idea of what that student is capable of than a number on a piece of paper, but that number makes it easy to just cut out a certain number that now you don't even have to deal with their application. Yeah, it's yeah. Easy, but it doesn't really represent what those students can do. No, it, it's certainly defensible, right? Like nobody, you know, below this number gets in. So right. when a, a student is concerned or a parent is concerned, there's something Con hard to fall back on. Yeah, right. concrete to fall back on. Um, but yeah, it does not reflect a commitment to like innovation or individual student success. Right. Um, so I think, you know, alleviating that or removing that requirement it also just reflects, I think, a willingness to think differently, which is refreshing, you know, yeah. and kind of exciting. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been such a great conversation. I, I hate to have to go because it's like I'm learning so much from you. And I really oh, think this is such an important uh, area that everybody should be thinking about, regardless of field, regardless of your position at a university or a college, or even in high school, you know, these are things that I think all of us can benefit from, all of our students can benefit from. Um, and I Thank just you. really appreciate the work that you do at um, U of A campus. And I hope that we get to interface again in the future, because I'm always interested in, in finding ways to do better in my own course. So, um, yeah. Well, I appreciate you thinking of me for this and, you know, would love to continue to talk about, you know, anything related to access or thinking differently about courses. I mean, that's again, what I love to do and what we all love to do at the Disability Resource Center. So I would hope that, you know, other faculty would also look to you and your colleagues as role models and, 
you know, again, if geosciences can make some really substantive changes to accessibility and inclusion, a, a lot of departments can, you know, and that's <laughs> what we're here to brainstorm with. So, you know, yeah. we love that type of work with faculty. So, so before we sign off, the conversation. before we sign off, because I do share this with students, where can students go if they're interested mm -hmm. in either learning more about this or if they themselves are interested in finding out about accommodations, where can they yeah. go? Yeah, well, drc.arizona.edu. Mm -hmm. And there is a very simple little online form for students to fill out. And I do want to share a little bit about it because yes. there's some misinformation out there. You do not need to have a documented disability to explore accommodations. Okay. You do not need medical documentation to affiliate with the Disability Resource Center. So if you believe you have a disability, if you feel like, you know, you're experiencing some disability related barriers, but you haven't used accommodations in a long time, you're worried that your testing is out of date please come talk to us. Yeah. Um, the form is minimal. Um, you know, it, it really doesn't ask you a ton of information up front because when we get that, you know, form submitted, um, we'll connect you with an access consultant, mm -hmm. likely based on your major. Yep. So our access consultants are affiliated with academic colleges. So they're better versed in different programs and, and disciplines. Mm -hmm. um, and then you'll just talk. Yeah. Um, sometimes we need documentation and sometimes we don't. Yep. Um, and, you know, especially now we're doing all of our appointments online um, or not, you know, virtually, remotely. Yep. So, you know, you can have a, a Zoom conversation with someone and see what we might be able to put in place. Mm -hmm. Students can affiliate with DRC at any point. So it's not like if I didn't do it in the first week of the semester, I can't ever do it. Right. Um, if I didn't do it my freshman year, I can't ever do it. You're welcome to come and request accommodations at any time. We can put things in place at any time. And that doesn't mean that everything a student requests is going to be reasonable. Right. Um, because sometimes access is built into a class, but it looks a little different. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes, you know, a request might not really work based on what is essential and what is required. But, you know, our role at DRC is to advocate for access. Yeah. So we always want the course or the internship, um, if, you're, if a student is doing something off campus, student teaching, or, you know, again, a, some sort of professional work off campus for credit, you know, we wanna work with the student, we always want to ensure that our experiences, even study abroad, things like that are yeah. accessible. Right. And that's why it's a conversation. So yeah. it's not a checklist of I request this and I check this box and you get it. Right. It's an exploration, you know, yeah. so we can ensure that it's not only accessible, but it it's good and it works. And it so works. yeah. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I will say for faculty who are listening, filling out the form as a faculty member at the beginning that asks about your course and the things that you yeah. do in your course is really important. And Thank I you. have found that it makes my life easier because then people at the DRC know that my class really is quite inclusive and provides all these different ways for students to get access to the yep. materials. And so then they don't have to come to me every time a student comes in because they can say to that student, 
Dr. Cap posts all her slides, her lecture videos, right. everything's asynchronous. You don't have, you know, and then the yep. students' concerns are often eased when they know the way that my course is going to be laid out. And I get a lot less emails from students saying, hey, yep. I need you to do this. I need you to do that because they know it's already going to be in place. Absolutely. Thank you for saying that. I mean, we tried to get that information you know, to inform our individual conversations with students, like you say, and also to inform our larger planning, yeah. right? So it's like, okay, this is a very large class and it looks like there's, you know, a particular way that they're doing the exam that we're, we have some questions about, right? Yeah, it, it helps yeah. us be proactive and hopefully alleviate some of the work from the faculty members. You know, and, and just again, a note for faculty members, part of our process is to be talking with you or gleaning through the information you provide us where there might be barriers. So you are an important part of the process. DRC doesn't just swoop in and change right. parts of your course right. um, because we want to, again, ensure that the fundamental outcomes are being met right. um, and that they're being met in an accessible manner. So um, yeah, thanks for saying that. that. That information that we get from faculty is really important. Yes. And just, you know, I've always been a big fan of the work you guys do. And I really Thanks. do want my colleagues to all understand that there's no pressure here for you to do things necessarily differently, but there are ways that you can learn about doing things differently that are going to make your life easier in the long run. So I just want that right. message out there, both for students and for faculty. And I really do hope we get to work together in the future. I'm sure we will. We'll think of something fun to work on, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, maybe around yeah. geosciences and disability. I think it would be really yeah. to dive a little deeper into how we can do things differently there. But um, I do too. thanks again for your time. And I Thank really you very much. Yeah. It's well, it's great to see you and to talk with you. You as well. Good luck in 2021. Same to you. <laughs> Hang in there. Take care. Amanda. All right. Bye-bye, Jess. Thanks. Bye.